This is the But He Spit in My Coffee podcast, where you can listen to my award-winning audiobook. I'm Carrie Williams, the author. Cindy Pillar is our reader. 25. Brandon twirls in a pink glitter hula hoop while Devin crouches on the floor near the TV, watching the antics of Curious George. I rest my head on the back of the couch trying to block out the irritating squeaking of the monkey talking to the man in the yellow hat in what feels like episode 500 of the day. As yet another new episode is beginning, Amias rushes in and snatches up the remote. He flips through the channels. I was watching that, Devin says. That baby stuff? Amias says glibly. Power Rangers is on. Not fair. Devin pounds his fist into the carpet. Then, Amias holds the remote high, moving it side to side as Devin jumps for it. Gimme! Gimme! You all like Power Rangers, I say wearily. Amias sinks into a chair, eyes glued to the TV, and grips the remote. Devin flops around and moans, but I ignore him. Curious George is a baby show, and Devin has been monopolizing the TV for hours with it. Power Rangers is a favorite of all the kids, including Devin. The boys have each claimed one ranger as their own. Amias is Red Ranger, and Devin is Green Ranger. Kayla says the whole thing is stupid. They try to make her be Pink Ranger, but she hates pink. Devin and Amias both begin to mouth the dialogue along with their character on TV. I rest my head back against the couch. I hold my eyes barely slit open to keep watch. I want so badly to sleep just for a few minutes. Before I know what's happening, Devin streaks by and karate chops Brandon in the throat. Brandon drops to the floor, clutching his neck and sucking hard for breath. I fly across the room and pull Brandon into my arms. I pin Devin with my eyes. Why would you do that? I, I was playing with him. My fingers clench and unclench like talons. I have to get him out of my sight. I didn't mean to. His voice sounds like he's sobbing, but I don't see a single tear. Go to your room, right now. Devin is rooted in place, but when I stand to go for an ice pack, he shoots for the stairs. I return with a bag of frozen corn and cradle Brandon in my arms. He has a red mark on his throat, but he calms once he's over the shock. Meanwhile, my anger mushrooms into indignation. Devin has got to realize how unacceptable his behavior is and that there are consequences. Time out in his bedroom is not going to make this stop. Let's get dressed to go to the playground, I say. Amias and Kayla scamper upstairs to change out of their pajamas. Brandon follows them. Devin, get dressed, I call, loudly enough for him to hear me from his bedroom. Then I add, You can do your time out at the playground and watch while everyone else gets to play. I don't see Devin push Brandon down the stairs. I only hear the yelp and a sickening thud. 26. Amias and Kayla saw how Devin pushed Brandon with one big shove from behind. What's wrong with you? Sam growls at Devin. I didn't do it, Devin spits out. They're lying on me, they're lying. My face flames. Shut 
up. You, shut up. Devin stomps back up the stairs, smacking the wall with his palm. Brandon sprawls on my lap and gulps sobs. I rub my hands over his body and look into his eyes to make sure they can focus. He doesn't seem to have any serious injuries. I look at the stairs stretching up high in front of me and mounting horror slams through me. He could have been killed. The front door swings open behind me. I look up and see Becky, who is frantic. Is Brandy okay? Devin pushed him down the stairs, I wail. Devin's dresser drawers crash and splinter above us. Becky shakes her head and purses her lips. Let me take him so you can deal with Devin. She picks up Brandon and carries him toward her house. Amias and Kayla dash after her. Sam stands in the foyer, fuming as I pound up the stairs and yell, That's it! I'm pissed. This has got to stop. I grab Devin. He thrashes and fights me. I dig my fingernails into his arm, not caring if it hurts. I drag him. He writhes. I thrust him into the minivan. I slap Devin's hands as he tries to twist the seatbelt away from me as I hook him in. Sam rides next to Devin with his hand over the seatbelt latch. Devin thrashes back and forth. My heartbeat slams in rhythm with his shrieks. Each second stretches like a rubber band threatening to snap. Vehicles loom in my peripheral vision. Mom! Mom! Sam cries in alarm as I repeatedly slam my brakes. We pull into the parking lot of Eastside Mental Health Hospital. I unlock the doors, and Sam releases Devin's seatbelt. Devin hurdles himself out through the door and bolts toward the emergency room entrance, shrieking as though he's escaped a torture chamber. That's when I know. This is a mistake. 27. By the time I pass through the sliding glass doors of the hospital, Devin is flanked by two male nurses. They are leading him toward a set of steel doors with the words, authorized staff only, painted on them. Devin squawks, but I see the jubilant spring in his step. Surely they must, too. Grinding my teeth, I turn away. The receptionist sits inside a bulletproof fish tank of a room with a round speaker. She points us to the waiting rooms. There are two, and I pick the empty one. That's probably empty because it's the sick room, but I don't care. I can't handle small talk or the effort needed to avoid eye contact right now. After half an hour, I approach the receptionist again and clear my throat, but she doesn't look up. Do you know how long the wait is? At least four or five hours. I'm shocked. I have other kids I need to take care of. Can you call me when the doctor is ready to see us? No, ma'am. My emotional distress bounces off her like she's a rubber ball. I don't live far from here, I add, hopefully. You are not allowed to leave until intake has been completed. Scrubbing my hands over my face, I fist my hair. The sharp sting on my scalp, a center for my tornado of emotions. Delano is probably not home yet, and I doubt he'd help me anyway. I text Becky and ask her to come pick up Sam and bring my phone charger. My body sags with relief when she arrives with an extra-large coffee. My throat tightens with distress as I tell her. The kids have homework. I need to pack their lunches. They should be in bed by now. 
They can sleep at my house, Becky says. I'll take care of them. I usher Sam out of the door with her and promise to call when I know something. As they walk away, I hear Becky tell Sam they'll go through a drive through to get him some dinner. Back in the waiting room, I sit on a plastic chair next to an outlet and charge my phone. I lean my head back against the wall and try to rest, but Pop and I open every few minutes to make sure that I'm still alone. The smell of old sweat and feet is almost more than I can handle. I scrounge around in my purse for my roll-on perfume and swipe it across the skin just under my nose. When Brandon calls to say goodnight, he cries, and I do too. Go snuggle-buggle with Auntie Becky, and I'll come for you when I get home. Mommy, I can't sleep without you. He sniffles, and I grow even more incensed with Devon for putting us in this absurd predicament. Yes, I let Amias change the TV channel when Devon was watching something else, and yes, that wasn't fair. But fair or not, I am the parent, and I can make those decisions. His response was totally disproportionate. Please, Mommy, Brandon whimpers. I'll be home as soon as I can. I promise I'll come get you no matter how late it is. I can't bear to hang up on him. I listen to Becky comforting him before she ends the call. I call Delano and hear the shower running in the background. As I explain what's happened, he grunts, disgusted. Not with Devin. With me. He cannot fathom Devon having any behavior bad enough that we'd need to go to the mental health hospital. It's my bad parenting. I don't even have to read between the lines. He comes right out and says it. I check in with the receptionist again. The psychiatrist hasn't seen your son yet. Don't worry, though, he's had dinner and is comfortable. Well, thank God for that. Just what I was worried about. She continues. He watched TV and staff's putting him to bed. So the doctor won't see him until morning? They'll wake him up whenever the psychiatrist makes his rounds. Even if it's in the middle of the night? Yes, ma'am, she says. It's past midnight when a young intake nurse calls me back to a small room with bare walls and a computer on a portable stand. She motions for me to sit and pulls a stool up for herself. What brings you and Devin here today? He karate chopped his four-year-old brother in the throat and pushed him down the stairs. Has he done anything like this before? Her voice is flat, uninterested, just doing her job. Not this, specifically, no, but he has terrible tantrums. My words race out. Now that we're doing this, I might as well tell them everything. He screams for hours, throws and breaks things, spits at me and pees on himself when he's mad. Her eyes don't leave the computer screen. When did these behaviors begin? My thoughts trip and stumble as they run back over the last year, then further back, back to the beginning. I guess since we got him. He came to us when he was three. We adopted him when he was four. He hoards food and gorgeous, makes himself throw up. I pause as the nurse's fingers click across the keyboard. When she catches up, I plunge on. We thought it was because he was coming out of foster care and he'd stop after he'd been with us for a while. At first, he was small enough for me to manage. I could pick him up and put him on his bed or in a chair. Today, I realized he's dangerous. 
He could have seriously hurt his brother. Urgency punctuates my words. He's four. Brandon is only four. Has Devin ever had surgery? She responds. No. Head injuries? No. Is he currently on any medications? I fish the bottle of ADHD medication out of my purse, glad to have remembered to grab it as I rushed out of the house. After inspecting it, she updates Devin's electronic chart. When we're done, I expect her to take me back to the ward, but she leads me toward the exit instead. Her voice softens as she says, Go home and get some rest. Devin's sleeping. A social worker will give you a call sometime tomorrow. A shiver runs up my spine as I walk through the parking lot. Shadows taunt my frazzled nerves and I startle as they lurch toward me. I look nervously over my shoulder into the darkness, hurry to my vehicle, and quickly lock the doors. At home, I find Delano snoring on his recliner. I trudge next door and let myself in. Amias, Kayla, and Brandon are all asleep in bed with Auntie Becky. Arms and legs flopped over each other. Jason must be on the couch. Becky groans as I whisper an update to her in the darkness. I leave Amias and Kayla, but I pick Brandon up and carry him home. I'm able to get a couple of hours of sleep with his warm body close. When my morning alarm goes off, my head pounds, and I struggle to get the kids ready for school. I put a sweatshirt on over my nightgown and drive them to school barefoot. I feel too unsafe to drive the few minutes back home. I pull into a parking spot at the school, lay back my seat, and close my eyes. It's early afternoon before the hospital social worker calls. Ms. Williams, Devin has been excellent while he's been with us. We haven't witnessed any aggressive or inappropriate behaviors from him while he's been on the unit. My stomach sinks. Just like Devin to make me look bad by being good. I run my fingers through my stringy hair and cringe at the broken strands I pull away. She asks me to come pick him up. As we drive home, Devin's cheery mood plucks my nerve endings one by one. It was fun, he says. I got to eat as much as I want. The jello is the best. 28. Devin throws himself on the floor and rolls under the kitchen table. His arms and legs flail. His shrieks pierce through my eardrums straight into my brain. He kicks the bottom of the table, lifting it off the floor over and over again. Every time the table legs crash back down onto the tile, the sound slams against the backs of my eyes. This has been going on for hours. Hours of nonstop screaming. Hours of Devin's voice ricocheting through my brain. Hours of not being able to form thoughts. Fingers shaking, I surrender. Or at least I try to. I hand Devin the extra package of Pop-Tarts he's been insisting he must have. Instead of taking it, he hurls it away as if I've handed him a coiled snake. My heart is like the rapid fire of a machine gun. With shaking fingers, I text Becky, OMG, I can't take this anymore. I want to die. I want to hurl Devin into a wall. This has got to stop. I close my eyes for just a moment, rubbing my temples. My eyes fly open, a sixth sense, 
as Devin's spit backhands me across the face. I jump up. I dry heave. I hysterically try to wipe the stringy mess off with my sleeve. I spin on him. Stop it. Enough. That's enough. I advance on him, my voice shrill. Just stop it already. He flings himself backward on the carpet. I can't grab hold of him. He kicks my stomach and already bruised shins. A runaway train has slammed into me and I'm careening forward. I frantically pump the brakes, but there's no stopping. Just then, Becky rushes through the front door. Devin screams only louder as she pulls me into the bathroom. You need to take him to the hospital, she says, jolting me out of my hysterics. It's a waste of time, I pant. Devin beats on the bathroom door with his fists. Let me in, he yells, pounding, kicking. Someone is going to get hurt. Take him to the hospital, now. Once again, I find myself sitting in the waiting room for hour after wasted hour, while Devin is coddled and watches cartoons, no doubt perceiving this as a reward for his behavior. The next morning, my head pounds, and nothing helps. I've been curled on the bathroom floor with a full-blown migraine when the on-duty social worker calls. Her words are no surprise. You have a lovely, polite young man. I picture him watching TV with empty jello cups stacked like shot glasses on the floor by his feet, and bile rolls up my throat. My voice is shaky from the pain of my migraine as I tell her. You don't understand. When he's home, I can't control him. He throws awful temper tantrums. I understand things got tense at home. Patronizing and judgmental, she spoons her words down my throat like acid. I'm going to help you out. We can't admit Devon, but we can keep him here for 48 hours under observation to give you some space and time to calm down. My politeness is on autopilot, and I find myself saying, thank you. But there's a humiliating hitch in my voice as I finish the call. Intense feelings of self-loathing sear my chest. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. The mantra runs through my mind over and over. And I do hate myself. When I arrive to pick Devin up from the hospital, he goes around and says goodbye to the nurses, janitor, and security guards like he's a celebrity. And they treat him like one, with broad smiles and high fives. So much for learning his lesson. Well, I've learned mine. We won't be coming here ever again. 29. Devin squats inside the closet in the shadowy darkness. He has a belt looped around his neck. I act nonplussed. It's a prop. And if he knows I'm alarmed, he'll be more likely to do it again and again. Stop being silly, I say in as carefree of a tone as I can manage. Reaching out, I take the child-sized belt away. Give it back, give it back, he yelps, following me down the hall into the kitchen. Take me to the hospital. He stomps his feet and waves his arms and reaches for the belt as I hold it over my head. I'm not stopping till you take me to the hospital. 
resigned to this nonsensical standoff, at least until Delano gets home. I carry my coffee into the living room. It's one of my favorite mugs, with a red dragon curling its long tail around the oversized creamy ceramic sides. I was born in the year of the dragon, but I sure don't feel strong. I'm exhausted from bracing myself against this mudslide of a life that's sweeping me over the edge of sanity. I set the belt on the couch and sit on it. Devin plunks himself in front of me on the ottoman, and his knees bump against mine. He looks at me in silence for a long moment, then says, Fine. Then I'll do this. He grabs at his eye and jerks. He holds up a spate of long, dark lashes between his fingers and flips them into the air. I'm gonna pull them all out. My eyebrows, too. I have no choice. He was just being dramatic. I assure the intake nurse at East Side with a purse of my lips at the utter ridiculousness of it. He wasn't really trying to kill himself. She shakes her head and frowns. He's having suicidal ideations. Suicidal ideations? What's that? Thoughts of harming himself, she explains. You don't understand. He's not actually trying to hurt himself. He wouldn't even know how to kill himself with a belt. The nurse looks at me, not responding, and clearly not understanding. He just did it because he wanted to come here, I say. Now, we don't know that, do we? She chides. The psychiatrist is also concerned about Devin's safety and decides to admit him. Devin has only ever been in the ER under observation, and this will be his first inpatient admission. There's an open bed at the Pines, which is about a five-hour drive away. They tell me that he will be transported there by a police escort. I ping-pong between relief and disbelief. He's not that bad. This is crazy. I should go pick him up. At this point, it's out of your hands the social worker says in response to my reluctance. Now that we've decided to admit him, it will be up to the psychiatrist to determine when he can be discharged. After we hang up, her words are like indigestion twisting me up inside. My nine-year-old son has been involuntarily committed to the psych ward. I hurry to Target and buy a teddy bear, comics, a word search book, and Spider-Man pajamas weave in and out of traffic to get to the hospital, rush through the glass doors, rattle out Devin's privacy code. Then I watch as the receptionist dials the phone with absolutely no sense of urgency to let a nurse know that Devin has a visitor up front. A few minutes later, a nurse with thick cat's eye glasses comes out and sorts through my bag. Spiral bindings aren't allowed. She waves the word search book in the air as though I've tried to smuggle in a pack of cigarettes. Tears spring to my eyes. Tears? I'm a mess. I rip the pages off of the spiral binding under her cool supervision. I return everything to the bag and toss the now misshaped coil into the trash can. She leads me through the steel double-locked doors and into the ward. The hallway is wide, with windowed rooms flanking the sides. Several cots line the walls. A teenage girl wearing brown scrubs curls up on one, 
On another, a blotchy-faced young boy sits reading a book. We enter the common room where Devin is watching TV. His eyes light up when he sees me, and I smile. He runs over and grabs the bag out of my hand. As he sorts through the gifts, I look around. The ward looks boring, but not particularly unpleasant. There's a whiteboard with the status of each patient. DW must be Devin. He's on level A, whatever that means. TS and MJ are on level B, and there are a few patients on level C and D. The three other patients in the common room are wearing hospital gowns and sweatpants like Devin. They're docile, presumably drugged up. Devin does not belong here. This is not what I want for him. A voice crackles over the speakers, announcing that visiting hours are over in five minutes. I take Devin's hands in mine. I'm so sorry. But maybe this will be good for us. His eyes wander back and forth between me and the TV. I tug his hands to get his attention. If they can get you on the right medications, things will be better at home and at school. I'm weepy and feeling more affection for Devin than I have in a long time. My stomach sloshes with guilt. I'm physically sick at the thought of sending him away, at having brought him here at all. I welcome the unexpected feeling. It's proof that I'm not a completely horrible mother, not a monster. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review to help others find it.